Hello and welcome to the Modern Reformer podcast. The Modern Reformer exists to disciple the saints, to edify the body by the recovery of the historic faith. I'm your host, Mitchell Roten, joined by my co-host, Avery Roten. Uh, we are here today to go through, uh, begin to go through, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Um, starting off, get a bit of an intro, scope, what's our goal, where do we come from, where are we going? Um, so, what do you got, Ave? Well, we are two Reformed Baptists, right up there, or we'll say it up front. Both of us. Both of us, that's right. Journey to Confession is one that comes out of the Scriptures. Long and difficult road. Arduous journey, some would say. So we would we would both be confessional. That's correct. We would both hold to this second level. <laughs> we, would, we, would, we would believe that the 1689 is actually... Uh, an accurate biblical presentation of doctrine. That's correct. So that is our purpose here. We're going to start to look through it, and we think that's the way forward is recovery of the of the historic confession. So we believe the historic confession is biblically accurate, and the Bible, of course, being God's Word. Absolutely. As Christians, is our authority, so that's where we need to be going. Right. So that's going to lead us into our first question of what is confessionalism. When we say the second London Baptist faith, you probably, if you're not familiar with confessions, what does that mean? Um, what you're looking at here is we'll say that uh, most churches today will have a, a simple statement of faith saying a, a very bare-bones truth. Uh, I think a better way of doing that would be a more full-orbed understanding of the Scriptures, and a, and, and a confession really does that for you. It's going to be a, 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 a gutter guard for you, I would say. going to keep you out of the weeds, going to plug you into the historic Reformed faith. So as opposed to uh, starting a ministry, writing our own confession, which I have tried to do in the past, I have fallen short on that and said, you know, I think I need to craft some sort of document in which to uh, spell out my beliefs, what, what you're going to get if you come and say, sit under my ministry or hear me teach, where am I coming from? Uh, and then I realized very quickly that I did not need to do that, um, that, I, that I did not need to be a trailblazer in this area. I actually needed to be uh, standing on the shoulders of men that came before me who were accurate in their summation of biblical doctrine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, the simple statement uh, is, if it's new, it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> We're not, you're not trying to reinvent the wheel. The truth has long since been known. God has revealed himself for a long time now. Okay, And yet again, I don't have the time, nobody has the time to do the proper, uh, uh, the proper exegesis that's needed. That takes centuries, right? And you need to... To, to weight these truths against Scripture, but understand that you have received these truths and you don't need to pioneer your own way. Yeah. So laying our cards on the table, we're Protestants. We're confessional Protestants. That's, that's who we are. Uh, more than that, we're confessional Reformed Protestants. <laughs> so, so that's what um, the meat of this podcast will be is from that perspective. So um, it's a theological podcast to say, uh, it's not necessarily historical or intellectual, though both those things will be occasionally examined. It's more of a theological podcast. That is to say, at the end of the day, what, what we hope to, to get across is actually, this is who God is. This is what His Word says. Um, we want to obey it. We want to believe it. We want to love it. We want it to change our lives. Um, maybe a step further is if we don't know it to the degree that, that uh, a confession would spell it out. Maybe we really don't don't know it like we should um, to, to challenge us in that way. Um, so a little bit of history, a little bit of summary in a way. What is confessionalism? We went through 
Yeah, basically an accurate presentation of a biblical doctrine, a systematic um, summary of what the Bible teaches on not every given subject, but uh, every important subject. That would be the hope of anybody that frames a confession. We want to cover the bases that truly matter. Maybe not get into the weeds of Nero. <laughs> Maybe we should. Maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> Maybe the later Maybe, day. <laughs> Maybe next episode. Maybe later on, no, you know. No. Yeah, there you go. So a um, little bit more uh, trying to be as as straightforward as we can. So what is Protestantism? How would you how would you describe that? Yeah, well, Protestantism uh, is really a continuation of the early church. We need to start there. Mm. It's it's not new. So we don't come out in the 1517 and say Martin Luther is the first Christian. We don't? No, no. We, no. Do. <laughs> we don't say that. So Protestantism is a... Uh, uh, is a derogatory term that was given to us by Catholics to say that all we do is protest. Huh. Yeah. So what it what it truly means is very broad scope. The term what it what it in its essence what it what it truly means is that you're not a Catholic. It means you're not a Catholic. You're not a Catholic. So uh, that's what it means in, in essence. And like I said, we don't we don't claim that the, the church started there. We want to say that this is true continuity with apostolic teaching, and also the the early church fathers. So going back to what you said, that derogatory term, a slang term, a term of rebuke in some sense, right? A bunch of bunch of protesters. Uh, it's interesting that that sticks, and it's interesting that that's how most things are named. Yeah, right, uh, from the opposition. It, uh, even the book of Acts, uh, you see that, right? Little little Christ, the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, they were first called Christians, as a, as, a, as a derogatory term. So it's funny how those things stick. <laughs> So, so Protestantism um, is basically anybody I would imagine, and I, and I don't want to overstep my bounds, but anybody I would imagine that's tuning into our podcast is a Protestant, whether they know it or not. Um, <laughs> so, so right. Unless you're sitting uh, under the teaching of the church at Rome, or you have a priest, or... Uh, or so, you mean or Orthodox. I or, mean, or, yeah. Yeah, so, or you're Orthodox, right. which we'd love to have you. So, so, <laughs> bring a little class in, yeah? yeah so, right. so, so, get some better beards, anyway. Yeah, yeah. better yeah. beards. Yeah. Just uh, probably, they're probably taller. So... so <laughs> Um, you're going to be Protestant is the thing. <laughs> Whether you want to fully come to grips with where you come from, um, whether you have Protestant on your church sign or whether you don't, um, especially in our local area, uh, you're going to be, you're going to be one. Uh, so right, right, absolutely. So what you also want to say is the church is always purifying itself. And that doesn't mean reinventing itself. It means, Further fleshing out these things, right? So yeah. you can you can as these things uh, gain uh, notoriety, as they gain teaching, as they gain uh, focus from the church, they become more and more clear. So the Protestant Reformation brings forth Protestantism, which is a, a refined version of the early church. I'll yeah. So that so way. in our tagline, we have the Latin phrase "ad fontes," which is to the sources, right? And um, not every reformer is created equal, but that that's the goal, and it. it's it's to go back um, to what's come before, to the faith, as Jude would say, once for all delivered to the saints, this idea that God has spoken fully, finally, and it's actually, um, as the church, as the people of God, it's not our job to figure out, you know, what do we do in this uh, modern age, whether the modern age is 1720 or 2023, how, how do we bring it, um, even though that's an important conversation, it's not the primary question or conversation the primary question is um what has god said you know and how can we be obedient to it right and that's where we dethrone the pope we dethrone the church and we say scripture stands in its place yeah which is a so so 
the the five solas, the five alones of the of the Reformation. Right, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> being um, by faith alone or sola fide. Right. I won't say all the Latin. I really want to, <laughs> but I know I won't say it right. Mm, so so faith go. alone, um, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Those three being salvation, uh, a different emphasis as opposed to basically for man, um, God being primarily concerned with man and and and. Uh, it's a different emphasis there mm. uh, that comes from the Reformation, and then, of course, um, Scripture alone. Right. So that that's going to be the big one. So when we say uh, that you're confessional, right? We I s- miss one. What's the fifth one? Uh, I don't know what you said. What you say? Grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone, Scripture alone. Um, oh my goodness! Now if we can't answer this, <laughs> oh my goodness, are we really Protestants? No, there was only four. <laughs> no, there's, no, there's, five. there's five. There's five. So, so scripture alone <laughs> That's is right. what we're getting at, right? So, so when we do throw in the Pope, when you put scripture in its place, what we don't say is that uh, what what scripture is. It's just the sole infallible rule of faith. That doesn't mean that there's not lesser authority than which that we have, and that lesser authority, um, if you're Reformed Baptist, should be the Confession of Faith. So where the, where the confession draws its uh, authority from is that it accurately surmises and actually summarizes um, biblical teaching. So it's a lesser authority. It does not mean it's a plant or is equal to authority. Uh, By the way, we might have forgot the most important one, which would be in Christ alone. Ah, if Sola Christus. If you're yeah. going to fumble on one. Yeah, not, well, this is our first podcast. That's not, the so, one, yeah. that's not the one to fumble on. Right, yeah. So, right so, there, yeah. so the five solas being a broad summary of all Protestants. And, and um, uh, we would be calling people that would uh, call themselves Protestants today back to that. This is where you come from. And, and not just for tradition's sake, but this is an accurate summary uh, of, of biblical doctrine. So the last thing, the last thing in this that we'll cover as far as an introductory question, conversation... What is Reformed theology? Now, this may be the most controversial in it. Um, not um, too far do you travel without some objection to either the soteriology of, of the Reformed or the, the uh, high church uh, worship style. Or, you know, it's a fairly negative connotation in our area, isn't it? It's a, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly um, certain type of badge you wear when you say, I'm Reformed. Uh, fairly negative connotation around that, I, that I've encountered right. uh, personally. So well, how would you define Reformed theology? Oh, that's a great question. So most of the, the, the objections are, are not grounded upon what actual Reformed theology is. When we think of Reformed theology, we should think of having a very big G God. Okay, When we say that he's a big G God, that means he's, he's God sovereign. Right? He, he, he is the first cause of all things. And then man's uh, abilities, man is downstream from that. So we don't we don't seek to dethrone him and put our own philosophies or intellect in those. We seek to say that that God is 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 sits in his own rightful chair. Um, that that's the big point of Reformed theology. The what big point is is that God is who he reveals himself to be. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. And, so. and I heard Sproul say once that um, Reformed theology is the only theology that. Um, doesn't have a unique doctrine of God that is it's orthodox, it's shared even across Catholic um, uh, understanding to some degree. Uh, but we don't forget about that when we go small on. Small C Catholic, right? <laughs> small C Catholic. Yeah, right, but we don't forget about that when we go on to other doctrines. We, we don't say God knows all things. God is the first cause and 
uh, sole instrument in all things. God has omnipotent power, and God's will can't be thwarted. And we understand those things, and then we don't forget them later on. Right. When we, when we move into other conversations that might be um, philosophically uh, influenced, right? Right. So, so it's that. So, so our assertion here, which is a big one, okay. <laughs> Our assertion here is that Reformed theology actually is not a philosophy that you bring in over and above Scripture that you um, got your 2025 uh, text that you have to leave at the door when you become Reformed, right? It's actually the opposite. It's actually um, biblical doctrine uh, rightly uh, articulated and then applied across um, the canon. Yeah, right. Uh, Systematic. It falls out of the text. Falls out. Of the falls table. right over. So it's yeah. not. It, that's that's one of the common objections. Is it's an overlayment of scripture, right? You've got to put on the glasses to get it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, and I think you can defend this very clearly that the Reformed theology and all of its <clears throat> glorious uh, teachings is really just very. It's a very biblical theology. It it, it stands where it needs to stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's rooted in something that's not man-made. Uh, right. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, so, so basically, a summary of Reformed theology. Uh, if you were to academically, intellectually try to describe that to somebody, you would say it's it's Calvinistic, it's confessional, and it's creedal uh, as well as confessional. It, That's it's, the right. It's that, orthodox, and then um, it, it's truly it's 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 truly a um, further purification of the original church of, of the church fathers. Right? That, that's it's the continuation. Idea. So, I mean, if you read the Institutes, for example, Calvin quotes the fathers continuously in there. So we don't, like I said, we don't seem to reinvent the wheel here. Right? It's not. It's not something new. It's something that that has uh, been in the church since its existence. It's just a further purification, a further hashing out of that. So when we say solo scriptura, we don't want to say. Uh, uh, scripture as in just me and myself under a tree right we want to say when we say that scripture alone we want to say scripture alone as taught accurately taught accurately taught accurately throughout history yeah so it's not it's that we believe and again we could get into the weeds and 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 a lot because we both love the reformation even though we're not uh, (laughs) professional historians by any means (laughs) but you could get into many um many conversations about luther the subsequent generations, which Calvin will be subsequent, mm-hmm. you know, even though overlapping, but subsequent, yeah, generation to generation, uh, the sh- the shortcomings on the one hand, and also the amazing providence of God to work through these men, fallible creatures, to bring about um, truly biblical reformation, in, not only in society which they did, but in the hearts and minds of, of people that continues to this day, uh, and again we would say that's. Um, as much as you could look at it historically, it's it's actually a providential move, um, as we know, of the Spirit of God to do these things. And we, we actually reflect on this and, and see just the, the majesty of God through it. Um, we inherit this great blessing of faithful men. Um, right. I mean, so I mean, so what they're what they're protesting against is is let's say that there's three tiers of, of tradition right in, in its authority. Uh, Rome's going to say it's three, as in it's it's on par. It's not sola scriptura. It's on par. Human tradition in the church is on par with, with this authority of scripture. That's what they're re- reacting against. Then two, like if we're going to say the second tier of understanding of tradition would be, that yes, it's scripture alone and all human traditions are subject to it. 
Right. But yet again, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that there's no. So we have secondary authorities. Right. Um, and the, then, <clears throat> then the modern evangelical church has a position of zero. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, so, there's so, no veneration. There, there's no looking back to these things. Yeah. So the modern problem, and, and again, a big, a big problem that's led us to the creation of this podcast <laughs> is the disregard, basically, for where we come from. And basically acting like we're men unto ourselves, um, that we're churches unto ourselves, that God's people came around in the 50s, right, the 60s, when my church was built. Uh, yeah. That church history actually goes back further than the 20th century, right, is, is truly astonishing <laughs> to some, <laughs> uh, and, and was to me, you know. So um, this might lead us in just to, because if you're going to go down this this um, this trail, obviously there's some classic uh, repeated objections that come up and we'd like to answer some of those on the front end uh, and not spend you know half an episode every episode answering the next potential objection uh, though that may be Pauline <laughs> though that may be Pauline we're not Paul so so we're going to get them on the front end uh, the first the first objection to this way of thinking and I, I think probably both of us I know myself I, I could speak and say that I have received all three of these objections at some point in ministry right um so the first one, very straightforward. Um, no creed but Christ. Um, it, maybe to say it a different way, isn't confessionalism actually a nullification of sola scriptura? So on the one end, we say scripture is the, as the confession will say, the sole infallible rule that it is alone God-breathed and that we go to it to uh, settle objections, to form all opinions, that it, it's the binder of conscience. So um, is this not a nullification of that? No, so, so um, no creed but Christ. That is to have a creed other than <laughs> Christ is somehow I- interposed here. That, that that that's what we're doing. Right. So uh, a confession is is really it's a, it's a, an invention of necessity. Right. So when we say sola scriptura, absolutely, what we're going to have to say is what does it teach? So <clears throat> when I say no creed but Christ. That, in fact, is a creed, right? Yeah, yeah, so if I follow that up with who is Christ and you give an answer, you you have created a creed. That's your confession. That's your confession. Yeah. So, and on that, um, Romans, uh, very, very um, well-known passage in Romans 10, uh, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. With the heart one believes, justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Maybe no more. Maybe it's top five quoted passages uh, around our area, right? Uh, so, so what does this confess? And and I think this actually is important um, for our conversation. What 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 does that mean? Um, I think most people would frame that as um, if you do this, you will be saved. And the confess is simply a robotic. You say the right thing. In reality, that. Greek word, which I won't uh, butcher, <laughs> is, is actually means to agree with, to proclaim freely, to proclaim openly. Um, it's not simply a recitation of um, Jesus is Lord, even though that's certainly part of it, especially in Romans 10. But broader, that, that idea of confession is to proclaim freely, that, uh, to agree with, I think is even more better. To agree with, um, in this case, to agree with what the scripture teaches systematically. That so so, no creed but Christ. Correct question follows. Who is Christ? There's your creed. And um, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, so you see throughout the New Testament, you see creedal statements in which the early church has. 
Yeah, by the early bags. church, you mean that's inspired yeah. by the Spirit in the Scriptures? Absolutely, in the Scriptures, yeah, you okay. see you see creedal statements of which uh, you'll see throughout every epistle, and that's widely accepted by any New Testament scholar. Is going to say this is an early creedal statement, an accurate, an accurate summary of truth. Yeah. So, would you say that it's fair to say a confession is a summary? It's it's not right. best case scenario. What we're talking about is a summary of biblical teaching in an accurate way. Absolutely. So that's what we're going to say. We're going to say this has its authority because it derives from the correct interpretation of God's Word. Hmm. Uh, so yet again, it's going to divide in some places and yet again, it's going to unify in others. So it really derives its authority from Scripture. That that's the, the So the objection is there's no creed that you don't need a confession. Right? Well, we've, just, we've just said it's a mother of necessity. Whenever we seek to uh, disciple, whenever we seek to grow in Christ, we understand we need all the scriptures to do that. That's not a simple uh, couple bullet points, you're good, you can now uh, faithfully uh, faithfully disciple or, or faithfully uh, run a church, whatever you're going to say there. So it's a lifelong pursuit um, of biblical fidelity, of, of biblical obedience. And we think a confession is, is really foundational to being a disciple. Um, again, so and that which leads to catechism, which obviously I think we'll get to. Right. It's going to be a while, <laughs> so, so, but leads to catechism, which is just proper instruction. So proper belief followed by proper instruction. Right, no, absolutely. That, that, it's, it's actually a quite simple. Yeah. So so a confession is going to give you proper orthodoxy is going to bring forth proxodoxy. So it's going to bring forth practice. Orthopraxy. Orthopraxy. Yeah. There you go. So it's going to bring forth. So we understand that. The belief, what you what you believe about God, is what's going to come at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. That's going to inform practice, not the other way around. Practice should not inform your knowledge of God. That's yeah, it's right. not good, right? Yeah, yeah. which looks like most things we might see on occasion. <laughs> uh, anything that's going to make the news <laughs> versus um, um, any type of um, familiarity with culture. Uh, it's not hard to formulate how that might take place, oh, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That culture actually drives the church versus the church driving the culture in some sense. So, right, yeah, not yeah. hard to find that. So, so answer <clears throat> to first objection: Shouldn't we be a no creed but Christ people? The answer is this: um, confessional position is unavoidable. Um, that's a hard pill to swallow, in, in some ways. But having a confession, whether it's written down or whether it's unspoken or whether it's um, overtly, so people in your congregation, people that you instruct can examine it and see if you're faithful to it, whether it's written down or not, um, you have one, and, and it's inescapable. So we want to have a good one. Yeah. That'd be our rebuttal. So um, objection two, this is man-made. I don't know how many times we've come across this, trying to instruct people to say, man, you know, what you might need... Um, fictional um, example here. Someone comes to you and says, I'm starting a church. <laughs> I have nothing. What should I do? Um, first, confession. That that would be my advice. You need to straighten out your doctrinal beliefs, you, both on a personal and, and then on a corporate level, and you need to confess that in the sense of um, the, establish safety for your members, establish um, standards for yourself, for your elders, uh, basically, set the Bible up as what it is. Set the Bible up as the Word of God. You enshrine that. You make that unassailable in writing. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's actually a very healthy protection. So, so 
Anyway, the objection then naturally comes, we don't need that. It's man-made. Um, we're a spiritual people. I've heard that. We're <laughs> spiritual people here. We don't need a man-made document. Uh, it's not helpful. Yeah, so what you don't want to have is, is something that comes up inside of a church, whatever issue it may be. Then you say, huh, I've never really thought about that, right? So then at that point in time, hopefully you're in a plurality of elders anyway. So at that point in time, your elders then have to go back and say, hey, we're going to determine what the scripture says about that. Mm. And then, so you're just, you're going off the rails at that point versus... Back back to what you said about reinventing the wheel. Right, absolutely. So what you want to say is, hey, this is historic exegesis. This is what the Reformed tradition has always said about this, right? And then that's what you want to, what you want to be gutter guards for you, right? That's gonna that's gonna keep you out of the weeds, and that's not that's gonna keep you from doing theology a la carte all the time. <laughs> yeah. Saying it's just it's just me, and hopefully I come to this right interpretation. Hopefully I can come to it in the next five minutes before this problem tears this church apart. Yeah. Right? You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So so it's front end guard. It's a front end type of protection. So so um, that's not to say that as a church uh, you couldn't find yourself uh, adopting. I think it's, it's the way people say that we've adopted this. We've adopted this confession. That, that there's never a bad time to do it. Uh, in a perfect world, it would be on the front end of your ministry, the front end of your congregation, that um, you have this as, as a marker, as a defense against false doctrine, against false practice, against um, everything from heresy all the way to, you know, stuff that goes all the way to church discipline, to practical matters of obedience to Christ, you know, and it does cover all those, you know. Absolutely. So, what, I mean, what we're not saying is, you, you again, you take the confession, you put it on the end of a club, then you start hitting the old white-haired ladies in your church. Yeah. Tell them to get out, right? So, saying so, that you're yeah. outside the historic reform faith <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. then kicking yeah. them out the door. Definitely. Right? That's definitely. not the point. Take much practical wisdom if you were to adopt this from a different, uh, no doubt. And Yeah. Right. But um, on the man-made side of things, <clears throat> we would actually concur that, that this confession and all confessions, to some extent— um, you take uh, Nicaea all the way up to um, the modern um, Baptist Faith and Message 2020, uh, Baptist Faith and Message 2000. You take all these things, and they are man-made, and, and men came together um, to, to compose these, and that's, that's definitely true. You could say the same thing about any English translation, even though some were made by much less uh, men, <laughs> much less numerically. Uh, so so how, far you, how far do you want to take this argument is, is, is the rebuttal I would give? Man-made uh, to what extent? Is Scripture man-made? No. Did men write it? Yes. So, so are we saying that the confession authors are inspired? We're not. We're saying um, at all. But we are saying you can take this logic um, too far. And we, we would say that um, rejecting confessionalism out of hand because it's man-made is taking that argument too far. We certainly want to guard against man's traditions, especially um, man's worldly philosophy overriding clear biblical teaching, which you see... It, um, in, in churches today in various ways from various agendas and you've seen it for the, the entirety of churches not a new problem right confessionalism actually uh, though it is uh, in some sense a man-made document um, it has authority when it's accurate to uh, the systematic um, presentation of doctrine within the scripture it actually carries authority with it um, because it it's subservient authority. It's, it's authority that's derived from Scripture, and it does then, of course, accurately um, summarize it. So that's what, that, yet again, this is what makes it a, a lesser authority. Right? Yeah. So it's still an authority. Yeah, so Nicaea on up to the, the, to the Second London derives its authority as it accurately 
teaches uh, the biblical faith. So that's what the Protestant um, emphasis on sola scriptura means. Not that mm-hmm. we, as you said, throw the baby out the bathwater. Not that we get rid of everything written down mm-hmm. before what? You know, and that's the question, right? Before when? Uh, most people would say before me. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Uh, every man does at some point take himself an island. So um, it, it, we actually do not nullify that God's been working in his people, that God did not start working with me um, and begin with me, and I don't have to start afresh this pursuit, right? So it's it's actually um, an interesting rebuttal, or an interesting response we'd have is that we agree that it's man-made, and that's not a problem, <laughs> right? right? We agree with that, mm-hmm. and, and we accept that. We would never call it anything but man-made, and we'd, we'd be fine with with agreeing to that objection saying yeah it's man-made absolutely and, and scripture interprets itself you don't need a man-made system for it to interpret itself what we're saying when it interprets itself when you interpret it rightly what you come to is is the confession right that, yeah, that, that we'd have, we have that we have. So, so right. we're hoping. Well, of course, there's there's difference in opinion. We're not saying that. We're just saying. Yeah. If you're a Reformed Baptist, if you believe these things, it should be an authority for you. Yeah. If right. you're a Baptist, it should be an authority for you, right? That we right. want to win you to the position. That's one of the right. That's so, one, of the, one of the keys. Yeah. So spoiler alert: um, the Bible's objectively true, can be demonstrated to be so. Our hope uh, is to go through the confession, to read these summaries of biblical truth, and then show. Um, basically broadly, but um, on some points probably more detailed, where the Scripture does present this truth, and it is an accurate summary. That, that, that's really the goal for the first part, probably the first 30, 40 episodes of this podcast. That's, that's what you're getting on board with, um, and hopefully that'll be edifying. So moving on to what we said we were going to get to <laughs> is, uh, is the history uh, of this confession. Now, this is a long, broad conversation that you could have. We're going to try to summarize this. And not summarize it in the way that you so often see, where it's basically you actually end up not really saying much. And you, you know, we're going to try to give substance, but but still have a, you know a broad summary here. So, um, background is is what we're getting at. Where where does this confession spring up from? Uh, one could almost start at the beginning of the Reformation, right? Uh, I think you have to. I think okay, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so when we say the 1689, and we say the second. London Baptist Confession of Faith. By by necessary consequence, there you go. There's your little confessional language for the Westminster anyway. That's from the Westminster. <laughs> there you go. We'll, We're going to we'll get see, into that. We'll difference. see why they changed that They're, later. They changed it. <laughs> we'll see why, I didn't we'll see why yeah, they changed I didn't it. know that until very recently. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I agree with the change. Yeah, there you go. Not so, just because I already said. Right. But I, I, anyway, yeah. go ahead. So you'll see why. Because the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, its main purpose is to say one thing, that we are not Anabaptist. Mm. Right. So what's that mean? What's Anabaptist? So the Anabaptist is is so if you talk to a lot of of Baptist people that have actually done a, a little bit of history, uh, especially if you're in the fundamentalist circles, they're going to say we trace our roots back to the Anabaptist. So what that's known as the Radical Reformation, and Anabaptist means uh, rebaptist, which is really a derogatory term given to them. So coming out of the Reformation, uh, you have the Magisterial Reformation. You can think of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, all those people. What you're going to have, the Radical Reformation, is what's called the Anabaptist. And the thing in which that we share in common with them is believer's baptism. Yeah, let me, let me jump in on this. I think this is a great point. Now, Anabaptism in this particular section is not directly spoken against, 
but in the forward or, or what they called an endorsement. And this, of course, is the 77, which we're going to get to. That's in, the same thing. In the same thing. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, yeah. So, but um, this endorsement was actually basically the opener for, the, for, for this confession. And I'll read a, a brief portion. We, the ministers and messengers of and concerned uh, for upwards of 100th baptized congregations in England and Wales, denying Arminianism. And they, and they, put, that, <laughs> they put that in um, parenthetical. Uh, they put that in parentheses. Um, so, so they open up. This is the fo- they couldn't even get through the forward <laughs> without saying, "We're denying something." Okay, we're, why is this? And again, um, we're going to get to it in more detail. But it's because they were they were slandered. At the end of the day, um, and you and you see this all the time. You saw this from the Catholic side or, or the Counter Reformation of. Um, you take, what's that place? The, the the German place where they Munster. Have, they take Munster and you just run that air. This is what Protestantism is. Yeah. You see the same thing you just saw this documentary come out. This is in our time. Shiny happy people comes out and says all Christians um, abuse women. All Christian insert terrible <laughs> caricature straw man. And, and and so it's not a new practice either. So so a big part of this confession um, is actually the context is we're not this. Um, by implication, people are saying we are right. So continue Anabaptism. Yeah. So, so yet again, up in, in, in medieval, well, coming out of medieval Europe, coming out of the Renaissance into the Reformation, if someone called you an Anabaptist, pretty much means you're a terrorist. Hmm. I mean, so you can use those terms interchangeable at the time. So you can think of, like Mitchell mentioned, uh, Moonster. This is in the 1520s, if I'm not mistaken. You early, have early, early 1520s. So then you have. Uh, Jane of Leiden going in and pretty much a lot of, I mean, you can pretty much, whatever you imagine is, it's worse than that. <laughs> they come in pretty much ushering in the kingdom of God. It's very apocalyptic. You have polygamy. I mean, just like I said, they put out the sign to all Anabaptists. This is a radical reformation. They're seeking to take over society. So then you actually see a joint Protestant and Catholic army going in there and really taking that out after a long siege and all these other things. but So the first London Baptist is to say, hey, we're not this. We're not Anabaptists, right? Uh, so whenever you're a Baptist and you trace your history uh, anywhere in America, so if you're a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, if you're a General Baptist, think Free Will Baptist or anything like that, you don't trace your history to, to Anabaptist. You're in, a you're in a different stream whatsoever. So if you're a Reformed Baptist, the place in which you trace your history is not Anabaptist in the Radical Reformation, but in Puritanism, right? So you're looking at uh, uh, you're looking at England. Th- that's your origin. So you'd feel you'd feel confident in saying that you could actually, in a broad way, start with the with England. The the English Reformation would, it, would be basically sufficient, even though theologically, I mean, we're talking about. Um, fairly big differences between uh, say Presbyterians and Baptists in, in some sense there's really more unity and and it really comes from the same vein of thought even though we may disagree on some would say primary issues some would say secondary issues right uh, so, obviously secondary obviously, almost to, everybody would say secondary I would say it yeah, right I would agree with the secondary uh, <laughs> so, some wouldn't so, so um, maybe our uh, yeah so I mean your vein the particular Baptist uh, which is just what it a Reformed Baptist is called until very recently. Right. They, like I said, they come out of Puritanism and that movement. So I think that'd be good. I think let's start with the Church of England. Let's let's bypass um, 
the early Reformation was the first generation will move into mm-hmm. that second, third tier generation, the Church of England. Post-Reformation. Right. Post-Reformation, and, and kind of actually applying, you know, yeah. pl- applying that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the beauty of, of the Second London. And we'll just call it that versus the 1689. We'll just call it the Second London yeah. just because that's going to be better. So right. the Second London, that's the beauty of it. It's a post-Reformation uh, confession. So you're really going to get these things hammered out in, in more uh, clarity on some certain issues. But uh, yet again, so the background yet again is England and uh, coming out of that is Puritanism. So Puritanism is really a movement inside of the Anglican Church that, that seeks to purify it. So there's a, there's a variety uh, of doctrines and teaching of those and mainly mostly Calvinistic <clears throat> in, in nature. And really the Puritan was, it really takes the scripture seriously and, and seeks to live a holy life. So if you want to think of the, the first generation reformers, you can think of Luther, Luther Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, all these people. What they give you is this very high doctrine, right? They give you this very high doctrine. And what the Puritans are going to do to you is to take that high doctrine and to apply it to their lives. So... Um... You mean to say that Puritans were not that band of people that were... That's con- also a derogatory term. That, yeah, yeah, right. That, that were concerned with um, someone somewhere having fun. <laughs> hey, catch them, right? Yeah. Got to stop that. Yeah. So, so Puritan would be akin in our day to goody-two-shoes, right? That, right, That yeah. was the derogatory. Even though we would say, man, that's a badge of honor. I'd love to be called a Puritan. In our time, we think, wow. But really, it, it was a, a slang, a... a a derogatory remark it's a movement that lasts for a considerable amount of time considering especially how daunting it is for sinful man to be holy right right how unappealing that is. how unappealing <laughs> it is right even even yeah. for christians at that point to say this is arduous right the yeah. sanctification is is hard to love the lord and um to take right. to take to take obedience to his word seriously and i think if you were going to summarize puritanism which we've got a bit ahead of ourselves but if you're going to summarize puritanism i, I think it is aptly named that mm-hmm. that is it's 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 a pure pursuit both in living and in doctrine yeah and uh, so yeah something the reformed faith brings forth like i said you you got this very high doctrine and then you again you see you see the same movement in luther through lutheran pietism you they did. have the same you, thing you used to or, or yeah well that, that's the key you used <laughs> to see that used, right well, yeah, just yeah. like you know people used to be particular about right, right. That's just, right. So, so but uh, but anyway so you would have had the church of england all right now what, what's up with that man yeah <laughs> so you would have had the church of england starting out with dun, 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 the man himself henry <laughs> the eighth right no yeah, so yet again, Henry starting out was a staunch opponent to Luther in his in his in his Reformation. In fact, he's given an award for being just an outstanding Catholic. I can't remember from, what the, from the Pope from the Pope yeah. himself. Good like, job. You're right. He's the he's Lord Defender of the Faith, right? Henry the Eighth and his, like his staunch staunch like views against it. But Henry the Eighth uh, seeks a divorce from his wife, which I did not. I do not. It's Anne. Um, one of the Anne Boleyn, I think that's who he wants to marry. That's who he wants to marry. I think Anne of Cleves comes along. There's a lot of women. Right. We don't want to get it, too down in the weeds. So let suffice it to say. Yeah. He he his he, first wife. His, I can't remember. <laughs> I want to say it was Anne. He, he wishes to uh to get a divorce and the Pope denies the request. And yet again, King Henry the Eighth is not gonna take that. So what he does is take scriptural arguments to say, Hey, look here, right? I'm gonna have a divorce. And what he does is, is create his own church and put himself at the head, and that is, in fact, the Church of England. So, so, he, so Henry breaks away. Henry um, breaks away at, from the Pope, from, as the king, and says that. Which, 
our uh, interpretation would be his his error was not in breaking away from the Pope, but in establishing himself. As oh, the, absolutely. Okay, so, so yeah, yeah. So he enthrones <clears throat> himself. Uh, he creates. He keeps. Uh, he's got one foot in Rome and one foot in um, Protestantism. Doctrinally. Doctrinally, yeah. So he he legislates both for and against his own reign of Protestants. Uh, so the man is 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 truly on his own, you know, self. He he he's not really a full Protestant. Neither is he a complete Catholic. So, you, so so his first wife was Catherine, yeah. right? Ca- Catherine of Aragon, right? Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Adam Cleves, mm-hmm. Kathleen Harrod, and Caitlin Parr. So that, he beheads almost all of them, I think, if I remember. So I think the first one made it. Yeah, I think I think she took uh, their divorce. Anne Boleyn, yeah, she gets so, beheaded. Yeah, so it's a mess. I mean, <laughs> amazingly, I mean, yeah. but. Um, Henry uses scripture, so so it's so what's interesting. Well, that's the main point: is he uses scripture to outweigh the Pope. Yes, and that's and what's going to bite him, right which there. he then nullifies by appointing himself as a head. Right, he does. So, so he, he, he does, but he, but yet again, his authority is still scripture, right? Yeah, so he goes to scripture and says, "Scripture says I can have this divorce." Now we're not getting into that, <laughs> right? For sure, yeah. uh, not right now. Yeah, but which I, you know, so so Henry says, actually, Pope. You don't have authority to to tell me if I can get this divorce or not because Scripture's clear on the issue. Mm-hmm. Now again, uh, men being men and being inconsistent to say the best, sinful at the worst, he was right there, not necessarily about the divorce, but that yeah, the Pope doesn't have that authority, right. and and the Scripture does. So yeah, so one of the, so you have Henry there, and he he yet again begins the Church of England, placing himself at the head. Uh, so you have the beginnings of the Anglican Church, the English Church there, breaking away from, from the Pope. And so, yet, so the Puritan movement rises up within this? Uh, yes, it would have been a later movement. This is where you see the development. You'd have seen that church. You can think of Hugh Lattimore, people like that, Ridley, Scott, all those all those people. Uh, yet again, very heroic Protestants and champions of the faith. But you'd have had that. And the reason that he's yet again seeking a divorce is that Henry wants an heir. Right, and he doesn't have one. He doesn't get one. Catherine, Catherine can't seem to produce a male heir. Only, chi- only women. Right, he's got some women. So yet again, which doesn't seem to be a problem later on. But but <laughs> at, at his particular time, he's he's struggling through. Right. So yeah. he gets one son finally, and right. that is King Edward. Edward. Well, will become King Edward. Edward the Sixth, if yeah. I remember correctly. So we so theologically, we we have this semi-reformed church begin in England. Right. So, so you not, have the breakaway from the Pope and so, the creation of its if, own yeah, if you think authority of, structure. If you think of the Scottish Reformation and just the audacious reform movement there that basically thumbs its nose at all, the, it's not that. Right. <laughs> so, so this English Reformation begins in a much less um, confrontation, even though it is fairly confrontational, it's much less than, say, a John Knox or a, you know what I mean, that era, that that. It's pretty confrontational, but yeah, it doesn't have the same esque as in the it's, you know we've taken the city, we've we've it's, ousted our it, queen, it, right? It, and it, we're yeah. taking over. Yeah. It's it's tainted with a I want a divorce, <laughs> so, right. so th- I'm going to start my own. Church. So yeah, yet again, so you have King Henry ruling that with an iron fist inside of that. Like I said, legislating both for and against Protestants. He he doesn't he doesn't like the theology. He simply just wants a divorce. Yeah. That's a pretty simplistic reading, but yet again. Yeah. So anyway, so he produces yet again Edward. Mm-hmm. So Edward's going to proceed him to the throne. I think when he's nine, mm-hmm. Edward's a rather sickly feller. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a great great health. But Edward is, is staunchly Protestant, and he's gonna, and that's that's his purpose to cement these things. But yet again, he doesn't live long enough to do it. Mm-hmm. 
he doesn't live long enough to, to, to really cement it inside of, of the country. So then you have Bloody Mary, which comes after him. So everybody knows her. Which is actually the daughter of his first wife. Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. So for her, her everything in which she knows is, is wrong because of Protestantism. Right? So she comes and Bloody Mary, she gets that name from the horrendous persecution that she, in, in fact, uh, places upon the Church of England. So inside of that, that, that's where you have there. She's trying to reestablish Catholicism, all the work which is done by, by Henry and, and Edward. She's trying Ed, to turn back the time. Edward was the son of Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour. Yeah, yeah. there you go. He, of course. Would have been his third, fourth uh, who wife. Who knows? He would have took Third a, wife. I think it, she dies in childbirth. I mean, you don't talk about a She dies wife. in childbirth, if I remember right. But, but producing Edward. Yes. And, and taking that name Tudor, that Tudor dies to him. Mm-hmm. him right, so there you get the Stuart, uh, the... Yeah, though you get those, and you get the Stuart dynasty yeah, after that. All that stuff. Yeah, so yet again, so you have Bloody Mary come in the rain, which may be the, the top five most well-known monarchs ever uh, to, to modernity. Right? Everybody know. knows. You say Bloody Mary, no, they don't know the theology, or any of that <laughs> stuff. But they're like, yeah, man, that was rough. Yeah, yeah she she got it, but she's rough. She's right. Crazy. So thankfully, <clears throat> she produces no heirs either, and yeah. she produces what well, she's trying to produce heirs. She. She she's not successful, right. so she has no children, and she thinks she is pregnant at one point, but it actually turns out to be stomach cancer. Yeah. So so thankfully she has a very uh, short reign of of terror, a decade maybe a little more somewhere in there. Yeah. So anyway, so she she uh, she has a very short short reign of terror there, and yet again the one that submits the legacy is in fact Elizabeth, which is uh, Henry's daughter from. Someone. 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 <laughs> Someone else. I think uh, Anne Boleyn. I think she's Anne Boleyn's daughter. So, but anyway, after Mary dies, and she dies uh, airless, Elizabeth ascends the throne. And Elizabeth, yet again, is going to really establish and stone uh, the Anglican Church. So you would have had pushes there for, for Presbyterian forms of government along with other purifying movements. But she's really not interested in moving any farther than than what it was. So, she's going to establish things such as you know she's going to keep the the bishop, right? She's going to keep the bishop government, the Episcopal government inside the church. She's going to proclaim herself as the sole head of that church. She was from Amberlin. Yeah. She was. Well, there you go. So she's going to proclaim herself as that sole head of that church, and she's going to keep uh, pretty much the. So now. This is where you get the common prayer books and the changing them based on is that is that Elizabeth that does that? She, she cements it, yes. She she so, was yeah. she was pretty devout in her own. Uh, yeah, so it would seem from the onlookers' perspective, mm-hmm. devout in her in her commitment to Christ. Read the Greek New Testament daily. You know, cared for the things of Scripture. That was her, if I recall. And right. and she um, she starts out. Is it with Kramer? Thomas Kramer. Who writes this original prayer book, and it's pretty staunchly Protestant, basically saying, "Hey, uh, <laughs> this is not a, a represented okay. sacrifice. This is not propitiation. Propish- we don't call people priests like we're talking. Mm-hmm. They they make a hard break." Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So she's going to submit really. And the Puritans were happy there. With it's the, somewhat, yeah. somewhat. So what they're hoping with nothing's with, good with enough. Elizabeth, right, but, is, is a further reform. What Elizabeth is saying, though, this is as far as we're going. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. They're yet again seeking continuity. Yet again, I should have I should have mentioned this. When Bloody Mary comes to power, a lot of Protestants flee England, and when they flee England, they go to Calvin's Geneva, 
and they see Presbyterian Presbyterianism there. They they see uh, like a continental, truly reformed church, and that's what they seek to bring back. So you can think Knox, Knox Train there, Bullinger, places like that, people like that. They really, they really drink deeply from the well there, and they go back to England when Edward comes, not Edward, but Elizabeth. When when Elizabeth comes back to the throne, they really come back, and they really want. They're hungry for that. To say, look at what happened in the Continental uh, Reformation. We want to bring that to England, and then she's pretty much says, yeah, you get some of it, but we're pretty staunch in these other things, right? So, yeah, so she she's um, an early pragmatist. She's not gonna, yeah, she's not gonna unwed the state from the church. So, so what they want is a biblical church-state sovereign sphere type thing. Absolutely. Even though they may not have used those terms. They wanted a lot of reform. They wanted a lot of purity. <laughs> Hence the name. So, so they didn't necessarily get that. That's what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. No, no. Yeah, no. So, so they were They didn't get what they want, no. So now we're getting closer and closer to, to the immediate context of, of our confession and our... Right? Yeah. Um, so, so you have this struggle... Um, almost all the way in, into modernity, we're Americans. We understand the struggle of powers, federal, state. Uh, mm-hmm. Here, here you have the struggle, church and state, and and word and tradition and and theology versus pragmatism. You have mm-hmm. all these all these things. So, leading up to um, late 1600s, obviously we, uh, though you said we're going to call it second line, it, it is toward the end of of the. 1600s that this yeah. comes to pass so right so i mean so you're getting at this point you're beginning to see uh, baptist congregations coming you're gonna you're gonna begin to see these things starting to form inside of that puritan movement right uh, the scripture alone inside of those movements so uh, elizabeth as she there's a lot we could go into there as she submits really submits the uh, the english church she's going to be preceded by james King James himself of the authorized version. So King James is going to ascend, and he's going to first ascend to the Scottish throne. So he's going to bring the Church of Scotland in to the Church of England at this point, and bringing that in. So you've got the the the, the turmoil there. So getting 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 on with that, right? But uh, so James is she Queen Elizabeth. It again submits uh, cements the the English Church, and then you've got James coming in. So uh, after James, a lot of things goes on there, but you really get the big one. Where the one we're concerned about at that point is Charles the first. The first. Charles the first. Now Charles the first is going to be what's called a high church Anglican. So he's going to take a lot more steps back towards Rome. Uh, he's going to give you you kneel at the altar receive communion he's going to he's going to be deeply armenian in his thinking and this is going to cause a great rift especially in scotland right Char- charles is armenian <laughs> so charles the first he's going to ascend after his father james mm-hmm. and he's going to really uh, not call parliament to session he's going to try to rule without them which is really going to come back to get him later but anyway, so you so you would have had that going on until there's a point where there's actually a war between him and Parliament, at which point they seek to depose him as king because they, he just won't keep them in session. Yeah. So so this is the classic. Um, we're very familiar with this to some extent. That this um, tyrannical king. I, th- I think most would say Charles was tyrannical. That that he was a dictator uh, right. in, in a modern use of the term. That he. Um, 
Iron Fist. <laughs> so, so, not that it was necessarily right what come of him, <laughs> but yeah. but that this this is the classic American struggle, isn't it? Even though he was probably much worse than George. <laughs> right. <laughs> but absolutely. So what what you'd have had yet yet again is is actually a war breaking out between him and Parliament. So the the army in which they would have raised uh, with its head, its captain of Oliver Cromwell, mm-hmm. it would have been the new model army. Uh, you would have seen that uh, war take place in which point that the that they're actually successful in deposing him. Now at this point in time, that's when you had the Westminster Confession. So you would think 1647. The Westminster Divines, yet again, it's it's pretty much as the as the Parliament is, is coming together and um, in seeking to implement Presbyterianism. So it's deposing the king, saying this is going to be the Church of England, right? This is what it's going to look like. So what you had inside of the army, the one that's actually defeating uh, Charles and actually Ireland, yet again, I mean, what would come of the Covenanters later, but yet again, what you'd have seen there is they're seeking to establish Presbyterianism. So that's where you got the, as, a, as a state thing, as a, as as reforming the English Church to a Presbyterian form of government. Yeah, so, so they like the Church of England, right? But, but but they want it to be different, right? Yeah. yeah. So they're seeking their own rule at this point in time. Yeah. So they depose the king. Uh, he ends up actually being beheaded. Yeah. Uh, we I don't know how far you want to get down no, the weeds there, yeah. but that's where you would have got the Westminster Confession. Uh, yeah, you'd but, got so the, Parliament was tasked, you know, not not to get into again. You could you could spend some time. Parliament was tasked to write the Westminster in some sense and, and called this assembly. And it, right. it, it's actually a very, a very interesting providential move of God in some sense to to right. create this doctrinal forefront of agreement to to not have this um, prayer book one prayer book two issue again <laughs> right. to, to to not have this. We're Protestant. We're Catholic. Yeah. We're mixed. To not this will never happen again is is the goal again that's a broad goal there's more goals but but we're done with that like we're if we're gonna have a state church which you know that's a, that's a conversation for a time it's not gonna be this kind it's gonna be a very clear yeah they're gonna so their task is saying what is our church what's the church you gonna gonna be yeah and yet again that's where you get the the, the catechism you're gonna get the confession the Westminster divines and they were tasked to complete yeah this. so they they call it assembly and yet again you're not only having Presbyterians there you've got Presbyterians you've got a few Anglicans uh, not many because Charles at that point still living pretty much says don't go to the council don't go but yet again <laughs> you had Anglicans being loyal to him inside of that. But that's to say that that's what point in time. If you're looking at 47, you get the Westminster Confession, so you've got that going on. 46. 46. Yeah. Okay, right that. in there. Right in there. In the 40s. <laughs> so yet again, at that point in time, you're also going to get the first London, if I remember right, 44, somewhere in there. The first London, first Baptist Confession. But anyway, so that's what you've got going on. So Charles is deposed. The, the, the Parliament is yet again enthroned. And what you have is Oliver Cromwell, the leader of the New Model Army. And they pretty much tell Oliver to say, hey, we're in charge now. All right? And you say, there's only going to be Presbyterians. They're, they're going to have yet again no uh, sense of freedom. They're going to bind the conscience of all Christians and say, you're going to be Presbyterian inside of England. Yep. At what point in time uh, is the New Model Army is made up of a lot of Quakers, a lot of Baptists, a lot of dissenting people. <laughs> So, <laughs> so he goes in and deposes them yeah. and kicks all the Presbyterians out and says... Uh, we're no, gonna, he kicks all the Baptists out. No, kicks all the Presbyterians uh, oh, of, the, of right. Parliament, yeah. Oh, right. And, and says pretty much, I'm going to rule as Lord Protector. I'm going to call my own people. Because Cromwell, 
being not really pragmatic, but being um, connected with these men and seeing their faith and seeing their yeah. In some sense, it's a personal allegiance he has. Right. To, so I mean, right for his army. So one sense yeah. you can't say we're going to have no edict of toleration for right. your army because can't, they're can't Baptists. Dr- can't be drowning these guys. Yeah, or they're Quakers or whatever they are. But then again, they're the army, so <laughs> not going to work out well. So yet again, you see you see that <laughs> dynamic going on. So he deposes them, and yet again, so you have a brief time between Charles the First beheading, and then Charles the Second coming to power, in which England's actually republic. Yeah, and, and, and uh, religious freedom in in, a, in the proper sense. You have a you have, you have a great religious freedom in during that time. He even brings the Jews back. Yeah. So yet again, you had a toleration at that point in time. It's very short lived. So his son tries to ascend power, and at one point in time, they they offer him the crown, and he refuses. He says, "You know, I don't, Crom- I don't want Cr- it." Cromwell, son. Cromwell, Crom- they offer Cromwell the, oh, right. the crown, and he says, "No, we don't <laughs> want it." So he tries, he tries to set up like a like a republic type deal. England and republic just don't go together. <laughs> they want a sovereign, and they want it now. So, <laughs> so to go back under that, that really what brings us to the big thing here is when Charles the second. Yeah. Okay. Comes back. He's back. <laughs> so Cromwell short lived. He was elected. Question. Well, the the no, Parliament uh, brought him back uh, and says you're the was, you're you're the king, right? He was federally elected. Somebody. Yeah, there's no election going on. No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. They're 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 pretty much off. So the back. Parliament was was not appointed either to some right. So right. Yeah. We're, so. we're not talking about a democracy in any sense of the word. Right. Absolutely. But not getting too deep in the weeds, but. I say all that, so I, I wanted to really get you here. So yeah, to Charles the Second. Charles the Second. So once Charles the First dies, uh, he's beheaded, and we could, like I said, I could, we could go right into very much detail there. But uh, so Charles the Second ascends back to the throne, and when Charles the Second ascends back to the throne, that's at what point that Anglicans come back with an iron fist. Okay, so Charles the Second, uh, why he yet again he's not really keen on religion per se he's well not as much as but anyway so but but anyway the anglicans would have come back when they'd come back with a force so that's when you had a very big uh persecution of all dissenters is during that time so you you could have think of uh uh, there's a few acts there in which they would have would have been acts of persecution the clarendon code uh, so they would enacted that, and that's from sixty one to sixty five, sixteen sixty one to sixty five. Parliament did this, or Charles did. Charles the second would have enacted this. It would have been the Church of England, but yet again. So once they come back to power after beheading the king and all that good stuff, so you would have had the establishment of Anglicanism yet again, no toleration. Um, let's see. So you had had the act of uh, uniformity. So that's reestablished in the Book of Common Prayer, as, as Mitchell's already talked about. Uh, you would have had a few more. You would have had the most favorable is yet again uh, the Five Mile Act. That's yet again anybody that's a Puritan that was that that wishes to be Presbyterian or Congregational, anything other than than Anglican. So, so if we were going to summarize this Clarendon Code, if we we're going to put it just in very broad terms, we have um, religious oppression. We have a narrow enforcement of of doctrine. Right, and you think of men like Bunyan, who is well known, uh, to say the least. The author 
Pilgrim's Progress and the subsequent lesser known <laughs> second to that. <laughs> so, so not to knock it, great book. But um, Bunyan was actually imprisoned from 1660 to 1672. He spent 12 years, and this is right in the meat and taters this, of this Clarendon deal. So, so um, in essence, Bunyan was charged with unlawful preaching, okay? Yeah. He, so, was, he was originally, and again, that's going to fall within um, all of that. So he was actually imprisoned in the 60s. So this is right up at the beginning of this idea. Yeah, so he wasn't uh, he wasn't a, a, <clears throat> an ordained Anglican minister. So at that point right. in time, you could not preach, you could not assemble. Yeah, so so yeah. not only was it, it was unlawful in the sense that he did not have the right papers from the state. If you want to say, <laughs> right. okay, imagine that. Imagine <laughs> that. So, so and not even necessarily, and again, they wouldn't agree with his doctrine. He was a Baptist. But, but um, the, imagine, um, in some sense, the state imprisoning a minister for not having the right state-issued papers. You, like, you mean like Canada? Like Canada, like China, like, yeah. like um, Florida. No, no, I'm just <laughs> That's a joke. That's a complete joke. Love Floridians. So, so <laughs> the, uh, an example. Floridians. 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 Florida peeps. So, so Bunyan is in prison for 12 years. He is actually sentenced to three months. And all he had to do was promise that he would not preach unlawfully. And he would not. <laughs> so, so 12 years. And um, so we're, when we're talking about persecution, this is no exaggeration. This is not, they wrote me a nasty gram. They sent me an email that was unfavorable. You know, people think I'm weird. This is true state persecution against Christians and, and particularly even Presbyterians, but, but um, Congregationalists and Baptists. So, yeah. Continue with the code. Right, the code. So you got the code there, and the the, the 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 most famous shit again is the Five Mile Act. That's that's evicting all nonconformists, the ones that would not uh, sign on to the Book of Common Prayer, evicting all those people from their pulpits and saying you can't even come within five miles. So, uh, what was done with the Book of Common Prayer is not what we want to do in confessionalism, right? <laughs> it's not our goal to to have that. We want willful submission and, and complete agreement, right? We don't want coercion. Um, so, but, right, yeah. since, since we're there, so, signed up. So, yeah, you would have had the Charles II, and he would have implemented that. At that point in time, you would have had, uh, after him would have come the throne, James II. That's, that's King James. King James II. That's, that's the one. He would have been after Charles II. Yeah. And King James II pretty much wanted to re- return it back to, to Rome. Uh, yet again, wanted to nestle and kind of cozy in with the French king. But uh, so he yet again does these things. And yet again, you, this would have brought us to the final point. Uh, so after after James II, you would have actually had the Dutch pair of William and Mary uh, coming in and ascending unto the throne. And William and Mary have pretty much a very broad edict of toleration redoing the high church anglicanism and that would have brought us actually to our confession 1689 the six, 16 the second london the second london which was formally published in 1689 <laughs> so, so um well it was it was first published in 77 anonymously anonymously in 77 and, and because of persecution so it was like this is what baptists think none of them will sign this right and uh, I, and i will say this before we move on J- uh, james the second was pretty much he was trying to do an edict of toleration the reason yet again that now this is not james 
1611 author. No, you're version. looking. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that, that's no, no. This is so after. This, this is a completely different. Yeah, you're like in the yeah. late 1600s at this point. Yeah. Later, yeah. anyway. Yeah. So you're, so he comes to the throne and he's pretty much he's wanting to offer uh, toleration to say, hey, bad this guy's. You know, you can all you guys can come back to your pulpits. You know, it'll be fine. Just just be with me. And what he, the reason he's trying to do that yet again is he's trying to get toleration for Catholics. Yeah. And so that way he, he's he's he, he, he's a closet ca- Catholic. He, 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 but convictionally he's a Catholic. Right. Yeah. So he's trying to return. He's trying to nestle up with France. That's pretty much that's his purpose. Yeah. So the Baptist then is like, yeah, we're not doing that. We know exactly what you want to do. You're a Catholic. You're trying to make us Catholic again. Yeah. But you'd have had that formalized with William and Mary in their reign, and they would they would have came and had the, the broad edict of toleration. Which would point would bring you back to the sixteen, which which is why it was published in that year, because um, it was tolerated. Right. So you would have had a, a three different publishers, but first you'd seen seventy seven and sixteen eighty nine is actually when you have over a hundred churches when you read in the preface, actually adopt this this confession. Yeah. Sign and, on to it. Sign on to it yeah. to say this is what we believe. And the beauty, the uniqueness, and what's beautiful about the sixteen eighty nine is it's a post Reformation confession. Right. So I mean, you want to look at the Helvetic or the the Belgian, uh, what? Belgian, yeah. yeah. So any kind of uh, you can think of reformed initial confessions, Helvetic, Belgian, or you can even look at at Osberg's, the Augsburg Confession. All three of those are going to be shorter. Yeah, which, um, being transparent. We we generally really like those. Oh yeah, they're yeah, fantastic. Yeah, we ju- yeah absolutely. And, and even even um, being even more transparent, we generally like the Westminster. Oh, the Westminster is the greatest <laughs> confession ever ever, ever, ever devised. Penned. Yeah, um, no no doubt. Yeah. And yet again, the the beauty of the 1689 is it's a post Reformation, so you have all these these doctrines really teased out for you, and it's really a full orb confession. Yeah. We we've been forced to ask questions for quite some time, so we speak directly to certain issues that maybe before. We wouldn't have doctrinally, not that the doctrine changed, but that right. the Pope being the Antichrist, for example. We'll get to that with all Reformed confessions. We get to that. Right. So, But we speak directly also to other, other things that are contextually relevant. And, and hopefully going forward when we actually begin the next episode and subsequent to go through this confession, it's always a good idea to keep... This is the context of it. Again, this is broad, but... The context of it is uh, a, a primarily negative context of persecution, and actually, mm-hmm. this confession, keep in mind, is penned actually during that. It's published later, but it's penned during that, and you can see um, that clearly in, in the foreword. So, moving to a close here, um, the foreword, which opens with those famous words. To the judicious and impartial reader. Now I'm on a. Now let me plug a resource. I'm gonna plug a resource for everybody. <laughs> um, I have here the Banner of Truth Pocket 1689. Um, again, published through Banner of Truth. Fairly cheap um, rendition of this. Again, I, I, I don't know. I won't speak out of out of turn. I don't know how modernized they made this language if they did at all. It, it reads very not modern. <laughs> so they may have just carried over. Uh, the confession, which is probably what you want. So, um, courteous reader, this is, again, the foreword to the 1689 published version. It is now many years since divers of us, with other sober Christians, then living and walking in the way of the Lord, we profess, did conceive ourselves to be under a necessity of publishing a confession of our faith, 
for the information and satisfaction of those that did not thoroughly understand what our principles were or had entertained prejudices against our profession by reason of the strange representation of them by some men of note <laughs> who had taken very wrong measures and accordingly led others into misapprehensions of us and them. So, so you see, this is open. This is the opening, but just as we read that preamble earlier, you can't escape this context of the, the reason for this confession in a positive light is, of course, summary of biblical truth, application to um, congregational living, practical purposes. But the context of it is this, um, misidentification with radical reformation, Anabaptists and various other movements. And that tradition continues. Uh, that tradition of calling every Baptist this type of Baptist tr- it continues um, all the way up into, you know, Baptists can't be reformed and, and, and things that you might hear as smears, so, um, w- which we will address. So, um, like I say, moving to a close, um, a quote here from Spurgeon is, I think, extremely sobering here. Of course, Spurgeon, a minister years, years later, I want to say late, or maybe, is it early or late 1800s? Middle. Let's say the middle. <laughs> okay, exactly. Of course, wrong on all counts. <laughs> the, the middle 1800s. Um, Spurgeon writes of the 1689 Confession. This, um, of course, is, this is in, the reason I plug this resource. This is, I'm, I'm getting this from this resource, this kind of forward introduction to this confession. Um, speaking of the confession and Spurgeon's use of it, in, 18, in, in 1855, C.H. Spurgeon issued a new edition. It was only the second year of his ministry at New Park Street Chapel, London. Spurgeon wrote, quote, I have thought it right to reprint in a cheap form this excellent list of doctrines, which were subscribed to by the Baptist ministers in the year 1689. We need a banner. Now, emphasis here, okay? My emphasis added. We need a banner because of the truth. It may be that this small volume may aid the cause of the glorious gospel by testifying plainly what are its leading doctrines. I'm going to read that again. Spurgeon. We need a banner. This is in 1855. How much... um, if it could be more true, <laughs> if, it, if it can, if truth can be more true at certain times, uh, which it can't, but how, how much more applicable maybe is this to our day? We need a banner because of the truth. It may be that this small volume may aid the cause of the glorious gospel by testifying plainly what are its leading doctrines. And he, and he closes, may the Lord soon restore unto Zion a pure language and may her watchmen see eye to eye. That is a doctrinal division and unity that's the idea that may we see clearly and, and may we ultimately agree and may i say that that's our goal <clears throat> um closing thoughts yeah on our on our next episode we'll try to to really uh look more at the westminster confession itself and also the savoy which is which is uh really the congregational version of the westminster you know, back, background background yeah. yeah so right so you'd have that inside of England as well and ultimately bringing forth to the Baptist Confession. So we'll look at more of the confessions there last time. The main thing, we want to see the, the historical context of which why it's penned the reason and really a, a brief overview of the English Reformation and, and where it stands there. Right, so uh, looking forward, what to look forward to. 
our next episode an examination uh, which will be a similar context of the Savoy and the Westminster which are previous you know confessions drawn upon heavily to say the least by the 1689 uh, and the original first London um, and, and as we, as we mentioned the, the, the primary goal of this was to keep unity among brothers that did disagree about sacraments right, disagreed about what we would still today see as secondary issues so looking forward to next time uh, been a pleasure may God bless you as you go forward this week uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance love the Lord with all your heart uh, by his spirit and uh, until next time God bless you <laughs>